Um, also, I want to say that occasionally when I'm studying and preparing for these talks, uh, I study and read lots of different people and what they've had to say. Uh, occasionally I'll read something, and, and as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, well, I, I can't say it any better than that. Uh, that's exactly what I want to communicate. And that happened this week, and I just want to be up front and say uh, a lot of my thinking and uh, words even are from a guy named Dr. Tim Keller up in uh, New York City. And he's popular, and a lot of people, you may have read his books, but um, he nailed it on this passage. And so if you hear something really amazing, rest assured it's not mine. <laughs> but yes. Okay, uh, before we read this passage... Actually, I want to read the passage first. That's what we've been doing, so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, look down with me in Mark chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read 1 through 17, and I'm going to stand off to the side, and uh, you guys can follow along in your white passages, uh, your white bulletins there if you want, or up on the screen. This is uh, the word of the Lord. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, In 2011, I saw a uh, commercial online. I was watching YouTube videos, and this commercial popped up for this thing called the Tough Mudder. And the Tough Mudder is one among many of these uh, trail race things that have sprung up across the country. Uh, You have Warrior Dash and Ninja Warrior and just all these stuff. Tough Mudder is, uh, as it claims, one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, because of its length. It is essentially a 12 to 13 mile course. 
littered with all sorts of obstacles, uh, mud pits all along the way. And as I watched this thing, I was fixated on it. And you know those thoughts that spring up into your head and you're just like, I've got to do that. I can't not do that now. And so um, I came and found some uh, persuadable TU students, in fact, five guys who I talked into going to do this ridiculous thing with me outside of Dallas one spring. And so we all drove down the night before. And what was really cool is on that Friday before the race that Saturday morning, uh, the Tough Motor registration sends you an email, sends all registrants an email. And it previews the course for you. It essentially says, this is what's coming up tomorrow. Get ready. And in it, they vaguely describe some of the the obstacles that are coming. And as I looked at these things, I thought, man, this is going to be awful. Awful, awful, awful. It was things like an uphill monkey bar climb. And this thing where you walk across a board that's this wide and there's this huge mud pit below. It it looked awful, but I guess I'm the idiot because I paid money for this. But the one thing that I saw on that course that I said, I got that, I can do that, was the very first obstacle a mile in. And it was the ice bath. I looked at it and thought, you know, I've had cold water dumped on me before. I've jumped in a little kiddie swimming pool of ice. This will be fine. And so there we were that next morning at 7.45. Music is blaring. Testosterone is oozing all over the place. And there are 4,000 guys and probably several hundred girls uh, ready to do this thing. And I set out with my friends, and we take off, and we get about a mile in, and we start to see the ice bath on the horizon. And I'm looking at it, and it's looking at me, and I'm saying, I am going to own you. And as I got closer, it looked at me and said, you have no idea. Because the ice bath, what I thought was going to be a little dip in a pool, was six feet deep, was ice from top to bottom, and to boot, there was a piece of plywood that went right down in the middle of it, four feet deep. And in order for you to get to the other side and out of the ice bath, you had to go underneath, swim through, which hardly swimmable given the amount of ice, and come up on the other side. And friends, as I got to the edge of the ice bath, I looked down and said, oh my gosh, probably said something else, oh my gosh, that is so much deeper and scarier than I thought it would be. And I jumped in and without a doubt, it was the coldest I have ever been in my whole life and I pray to God is the coldest I will ever be in my whole life. It was awful, awful. In this passage that we just read, Jesus shows up on the scene, and here is a man who uh, is paralyzed, and his friends have such audacity to, to lower him down through the roof in front of Jesus. It says that they tore open the roof. I don't really know what that means. I'm guessing there was some sort of thatched roof or something, and they start peeling it back to bring this man to Jesus. And in his response to this man... We learn something deeply about Jesus and about ourselves. And it is that what sin has done to us and what sin has done to the world is so much deeper than we ever feared. But Jesus stands ready and willing to go into the depth with you and for you 
Because, as we're going to see tonight, He is the greatest physician that you never knew that you needed. This story is interesting because, on one hand, it's all about this man who was paralyzed and is healed. But on the other hand, it really doesn't have that much to do with the man who is paralyzed and was healed. In fact, what draws the attention of the story the most are the people that we see in the story. The people and their reactions, and of course Jesus. And yes, there is the man. And so that's how we're going to look at this passage tonight. We're going to look first at Jesus, the greatest physician, then secondly, at the healthy people, and thirdly, at this forgiven, healed man. So let's look at, look at, let's look at Jesus for just a moment. There he is. It says that he is preaching the word to them, which if you've been here the last few weeks, if not, it's fine, catch it on the podcast. Uh, Jesus came out saying, I have good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he said, that's why I came out, is to preach and teach this good news, because it is what the world needs to be healed and restored. And so there he's doing it. He's probably right to the funny part of his illustration or maybe a YouTube clip. And the dust starts coming onto his notes. And lo and behold, this guy comes through the ceiling. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. And Jesus looks up at him and does and says what any well-meaning, right-thinking person at the time would say, hey man, your sins are forgiven. No, that's crazy. That's crazy, right? He doesn't pause. He doesn't say, dude, what are you doing? You just ripped open, it says his house, maybe he ripped open my roof. What are you doing? Jesus simply looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, those who are around Jesus, it says, the scribes, they start to think to themselves, uh, you can't say that, Jesus. You can't just willy-nilly, off the cuff, declare that someone's sins are forgiven. You can't do that. We'll talk, why, we'll talk about why they got so angry and why they start grumbling in their hearts but Jesus essentially responds to them by saying, look, I, I get it. I know that this man has a physical problem. And I'm going to deal with that in a minute. But what you and what all of us have to understand is that his most fundamental problem is his sin. It is not his broken limbs and his broken body. It is, it is his broken life and his broken heart. And Jesus goes right to the heart of that and heals that place first. And what we all have to realize alongside of that is the same thing that people there didn't get, is that sin is sometimes really hard to see. It isn't the thing sometimes that jumps out at us about ourselves and about other people. But the sin within is what is ultimately killing us, and Jesus goes right for that place. Now, this is a bit of a ridiculous illustration, uh, which happens when I think up stories on my own, so hang with me. Um, Imagine that you have graduated college, and you buy a cute little house here in Tulsa, or maybe you go back to St. Louis and buy a cute little house there, and you are sitting at home in this well-dressed, nice, middle-aged man A little nerdy looking, but that's cool in these days. He walks up to your door and he knocks and you answer and you say, can I help you? 
He says, yes, I am Dr. Sullivan. Okay, hi, Dr. Sullivan. How can I help you? He said, can I come in and have a chat with you? Seems nice enough. Doesn't seem like he's going to do anything weird. And so you invite him into the house, and he sits down, and you guys have a pleasant conversation, yet you never really understand why he is there. But what you do find out about him is that he is an oncologist. And he goes to great lengths to make sure you understand exactly what an oncologist is, that he deals with cancer. And he sees people with cancer and seeks to bring healing to their lives. He leaves your house. You're totally weirded out. You don't know why he was there. But from that day on, you see him around town everywhere. You see him at the zoo. You see him walking down Brookside. You see him here at TU occasionally on game day. And every time he sees you, he comes up to you and says, Oh, it's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. I'm Dr. Sullivan. I'm an oncologist. And the next time he does the same thing, it's so good to see you. You know I'm an oncologist, right? And it is freaking you out by this point. You don't know who he is, and it's weird, and he keeps telling you that. And then you go to your family physician later in the year, and he grabs you by the hands and says, Look, you've got a few spots on the back of your neck that we need to take a look at. It's right back there in that spot that you can't see. And also, consequently, the place where you can't wash, but that's different. Uh, it's right back there, and you need to get it checked out. And so you go see Dr. Sullivan. And what Dr. Sullivan tells you that day is, yeah, you see, I knew that all along. Because I was walking behind you at the farmer's market the other day, and because I am trained to see this stuff, and I know exactly what it is, I looked at the back of your neck, and I knew that you had skin cancer. And once you realized your deep need for him, Dr. Sullivan became not only useful to you, but precious to you. And he walked with you through that whole process. Jesus, in this passage, is that awkward doctor, if you'll allow me to call Jesus awkward for a second. Because on the spot, he looks and does something that doesn't make sense. Just like the doctor showing up at your door. It doesn't make sense what Jesus does. And yet it is precisely because Jesus is God and he can look deep into someone's heart and life and see the real problem that he comes right out of the gate and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Because he knows that to only heal what is on the outside will be forever like a doctor putting band-aids on your cancer. It simply won't work. And he declares to this man, your sins are forgiven. You are clean on the inside. And it's great. And he then tells him to get up and walk. Great. No big deal, right? Wrong. It was a big, big deal because we also see that there were healthy people there. And they don't really like what just went down, and this is why. Just as Jesus is claiming to forgive this man's sins, the scribes who uh, in that day were like the seminary professors of the Jewish religion, they were the ones who knew everything. They had studied it. They had devoted their lives to good Jewish religious practice. And they were there in his midst. And they actually rightly started questioning what Jesus did. 
Because when Jesus said your sins are forgiven, their alarms are going off and they start processing this. It says they question him. Literally that word means they process at a deep, thorough, and complete level. They are working this through their mental and theological grid, thinking to themselves, you can't do that. This is blasphemy. And Jesus looks up because he is God. Yes, he knows. But also because he knows they are scribes. And he knows that appropriately they should be alarmed at what he just did. And he looks right at them and says, why are you so troubled in your hearts? You see, in the Jewish religion, there was only one place where forgiveness of sin could happen and be proclaimed. At the temple. And there was only one person who was authorized to say those words, your sins are forgiven, the priest. And there was only one way that the priest could do that. He had to make a sacrifice. And when Jesus stands up and says, your sins are forgiven, they are freaking out. Because Jesus has just uttered blasphemy in their presence. It's the equivalent of, how many of you guys have seen uh, Victoria Osteen floating around on the internet in the last week? Okay, uh, I usually don't try pick on people like this, but look, this is rightly so. We have to look and say what she said in that video clip for three minutes was forever, for the 2,000 years of Orthodox Christianity, heresy. It was blasphemy. And Facebook and the Internet lit up because what she is on that video saying is, look, whenever you try to do something good, let's be honest, you're not really doing it for God. You're just doing it for you. And Christians went crazy and said, whoop, false. That's not true, Victoria. That when Jesus comes in and trains and changes our heart and cleanses us from sin and forgives us, we can actually begin to do things for God. It's not all just about me anymore. Another, uh, perhaps a little lighter illustration. Uh, how many of you guys have seen Jimmy Kimmel's Lie Witness News? Yes. Uh, if not, I almost say I'll let you right now. I'll get out your friends and do it. How about after RUF? Uh, what this whole thing is about on Jimmy Kimmel is that he sends a group of reporters out to the field. Uh, the one I watched last night was uh, at the New York Fashion Show. And he sends his camera crew out there, and they interview people who are coming in and out of the fashion show. And they will make up the most bizarre names of supposed fashionistas and stuff. And they'll interview people and say, hey, what do you think about Bobby Labuse? And they'll say something and they'll be like, oh, yeah, he's got really nice stuff. I mean, it's not quite my taste. I mean, they just totally made this stuff up. And they go on and on and on. And they bait people with these ridiculous names. And people are squirming. It's like, oh, yeah, I think I've heard of him. But he's not that great. Doing this the whole time. Uh, there's another really hilarious one where Jimmy Kimmel goes out to this, like, Woodstock-type festival. Has, has any of y'all seen that one? Oh, man. Oh, gosh. Please watch it. Um, they're outside the festival. And they go off just rattling off these made-up band names. And they start saying, hey, did you catch Earl in the tree? And they're like, oh, yeah, they were amazing. They played so passionately and all this stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, what about Bobby LeBou? It's like, oh, she was great. And they just go on and on. I mean, the joke is on them, right? That anybody who knew what they were talking about knew that they couldn't say that because it was made up. They didn't have authority to speak on those things just like Victoria Olstein didn't, just like Jesus didn't hear or did he. 
Let's look down in verse 8 and read what Jesus says to them in response. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Jesus, in showing his power over the natural world in healing this man's physical condition, on the spot claims that he also is Lord of the supernatural. In showing and demonstrating that he is Lord over the natural and physical realm, he is by implication saying, yeah, I can do that too. I am God. I can forgive sin. Elsewhere, he would look at himself and say, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise up again. Jesus was the final sacrifice. He is the high priest. He absolutely has the authority to do this. And Jesus continues his downward spiral in the popularity among the healthy people. Down in verses 13 through 17, if you want to look down, you can. But essentially what happens is he goes and calls this notorious tax collector, sinner guy, Levi, to follow him, and he does. And then Jesus ends up at a party with Levi and his friends sitting around him. And the scribes are there saying, what are you doing? Why are you sitting with sinners? And Jesus turns to them and says, look, I didn't come for the righteous. I came to call sinners. So let's talk about that for a second. Does this mean that Jesus only loves the very worst people in society? Does it mean that Jesus only cares about the testimonies of the guy or the girl who was strung out on heroin or who was involved in prostitution or who couldn't stop cheating or stealing cars or whatever? Does it mean that Jesus only cares about the -the over-the-top things? No. What it does mean and what Jesus is absolutely saying is that there are no healthy people. It's not just that I care for the most sick. It's that everybody is sick. There is no such thing as goodness apart from Him. And what He's saying is the difference of what kind of people are in this world is this right here. There are either those who know themselves to be sick or those who think themselves to be well. And friends, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who can look at themselves honestly in the mirror, lay their pillow on the head at night, and honestly know in the depths of their heart that I have not done and lived and performed and thought as I ought to have thought. And I don't even know what sort of standard that I'm comparing myself to, but I know that I have not done as I ought to have done. And there are those who look in the mirror and say, you know, At least I'm not as bad as those people. And they will spend the rest of their lives justifying yourself, looking at the bad people and saying, well, there's those sinners and I'm not that. And what I want to suggest to you, 
from this passage tonight is Jesus is coming right to you and saying, you are delusional. That there are no good people. And He calls you to turn from your deadly goodness and admit that you are sicker than you even know. And to come to Him. Last week, I went to the on-campus vigil uh, right out there commemorating uh, Michael Brown and his tragic loss of life in Ferguson several weeks ago. Uh, And essentially, the vigil was bringing awareness to violence and oppression of all kinds. And um, one of the speakers there, several students from the Association of Black Collegians and other groups uh, were there. And one of the speakers brought this point to the surface, and it was spot on, and it hit me like a freaking brick. She said, just because you don't have the eyes to see racism and prejudice and injustice around you does not mean it doesn't exist. Friends, Jesus, as that that superb oncologist, the greatest physician, looks at you and says, look, just because you don't know what sin looks like in your life doesn't mean it's not there. It is there. Talk to someone. Talk to me. Cry out to God and say, Lord, help me to know it, that I might turn from it and turn to you instead. The healthy people, they were well-meaning, But as we would learn over the course of this gospel throughout the rest of the semester and next, they simply didn't see their need for Jesus. Because sin isn't just doing bad things, it's living your life without reference to Jesus as the true King. And so in whatever area of your life that Jesus is not stepping in and you're letting Him be Lord of that area, that is called sin. It's not just when you do the bad things like lusting and lying. It's anywhere where you're looking at God and saying, I think I'll do what I want to do here. And the Bible says that's our biggest and deepest problem, is living without regard for Him. Lastly, we see the forgiven, healed paralytic in this story. If you'll allow me, I'm actually just going to look uh, at a passage. How many of you all have read Chronicles of Narnia, The uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader? C.S. Lewis book, phenomenal book. Um, I'm going to read about it for just a second, and I'm going to read a passage from it so we can understand this forgiven paralytic. So in the book, uh, I'll catch you up to speed, C.S. Lewis uh, writes that there's a a boy named Eustace, and everybody hates him, and he hates everybody. He's selfish, mean. No one wants to be around him, which is fine with him because he doesn't want to be around anybody either. But he finds himself magically on a boat called the Dawn Treader, taking a great voyage. And at one point, the boat pulls to an island, and Eustace wanders off, journeying about, and he finds a cave. The cave proves to be filled with diamonds and rubies and gold and sapphires, and he thinks to himself, I'm rich. I can't believe that I found this treasure. And immediately, because he is who he is, he starts thinking about all the ways that he's going to pay back and really stick it to the people who have stuck it to him. And at the end of that excitement, he falls asleep. And what he doesn't realize is that he, the, the, the treasure he has found, the hoard he has found, is the treasure in the hoard of a dragon. And when he wakes up, Because he had fallen asleep with these dragonish evil thoughts in his heart, when he wakes up, he has become a dragon. 
big and terrible and ugly. And soon he realizes that there is no way out of the cave. There's no way off the island. He can't get on the boat. He's going to be horrible his whole life. And he falls into despair, right? One day the great lion Aslan shows up and leads him to a clear pool of water, tells him to look in there, and then tells him to undress and jump in. And suddenly Eustace realizes that undress means take off the dragon skin. And so he begins to gnaw and claw at his skin. And after some time, he, he gets through a layer of it, only to depressingly discover that there is more skin and there are more scales beneath. And he tries a second and a third time to no avail. And each time the lion says, you're going to have to let me go deeper than that, Eustace. You don't understand how deep the problem is. And here's how Eustace tells the story later. He says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty pretty near desperate now. And the very first tear that Aslan made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly and hobby-looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It hurt like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I had turned into a boy again. Like the paralytic in this story, and like every single one of us in our lives, we will come to Jesus from time to time, if not every time, thinking, Jesus, I've got this problem. I've got this thing that has come up in my life, and I need you to fix it. Or I can't stop doing this thing. I need you to fix that. I need you to help me, Jesus. I need you to help me, Jesus. But what Jesus has come to say is, I've got to go deeper. I have to get you at the heart. I have to deal with your sin first before I can ever restore you physically and send you on your way. And so that's what he does. Jesus looks at the paralytic after he has been been forgiven and healed and he tells him what? Look down the passage with me. Rise, take up your bed and go home. Go home. Go and live. Be free as you were created to be. Friends, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to free you and make you the person that you have always been created to be. He invites you to go deep. And the story works because the great physician himself becomes immobile on a cross. And He takes wounds on Himself voluntarily and willingly so that your wounds and so that your immobility because of sin and sickness can be taken from you. He receives the just wrath of God toward all of our sin and rebellion. He takes it so that your heart can be changed and so that you can be free to live. He does it with the paralytic. He has done it with me. He has done it with some of you. Would you let him do it with you right now tonight? It is for your good. 
Because He loves you. He is the greatest physician that you now know about. Run to Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You that You are kind and patient. That through what Jesus has done on the cross, You don't count our sins against us, but You have taken them from us and You have dealt with them. And so now You can deal with us out of Your love and Your grace and Your mercy. Would You help us to enter into the places in our hearts which we have failed to go to thus far? Would You help us to feel the freedom and the healing that comes with, with admitting that we need You because we are desperate and helpless sinners? And would You in that place meet us with Your deep love so that we might be cleansed from the deep place within and be freed up to live for You? We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.